This is Dan Fagella, and you're listening to the AI in Business podcast. This is our Tuesday episode, so you know what we're going to be diving into? AI use cases. That's what we do here every single Tuesday. And we like to keep some strong variety in the mix. We've had venture capitalists on recently in our Tuesday episodes. We have had leaders of AI vendor companies. Uh, And this week, we speak with the founder of a multi-billion dollar firm. Glenn DeVries was the co-founder of Metadata, a firm founded nearly 20 years ago or slightly over 20 years ago, which was recently sold to Dassault Systems for close to $6 billion. Uh, That is an awfully lofty achievement for Glenn, our guest, and it also gives him a really interesting perspective on the state and the future of data in the life sciences domain. Glenn has some strong ideas from his past in life sciences data, as well as where he's aiming to take the company into the future, as to how the data ecosystem in life sciences will evolve and how companies will be able to maybe pool together data or work with data in new ways to glean better insights, hopefully deliver better business results and better outcomes for patients as well. Um, Metadata may not have been doing AI from day one, but you know, as the name implies, uh, working with data is is their ground up game. And I think there's hardly anybody beyond Glenn who would have a deeper perspective on the exact topic we're talking about today. I should note that experts like Glenn, again, founders of uh, companies that sell for $6 billion, are not exactly easy folks to get a hold of. And we try to get the highest, the loftiest perspectives that we can on the program. If you like what you're hearing here on the AI and Business Podcast, it would mean the world for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It used to be called iTunes. I think it's changed its name. But if you drop us a review there, not only do sometimes I I like to include those in our emailed newsletters, mention some of the kind things people say about us, but it's great feedback that helps us know what do people like most. Drop us a five star, let us know what you want to see more of, what you really like about the program. And I hope that insights from folks like Glenn are really going to help you drive results in your own business as well. Without further ado, I want to jump right into this episode. Glenn brought some great energy and I'm excited to get this one live. Let's kick it off. This is Glenn with Metadata here on the AI and Business Podcast. So Glenn, uh, we're going to talk a bit about the future and we're in this wild time in your industry with the coronavirus, but I want to ground us in the now. When, when you look, you know, you've been in this space for 20 years, you look at where data and AI are starting to kind of transform processes in life sciences. How do you like to frame it? What's the state of affairs today? Yeah, so I, I think if you, if you look at what happens in life sciences outside of data, we just look, start with, with people. Right. The, the big trend that we're seeing is, and it's a good trend, it's the world I want to live in as a patient, therapies are getting more effective. Therapies are getting safer. And it's because they're being designed in a very different way. It used to be that you try to create a therapy that worked for as many people as you possibly could, and you would maybe be high-fiving in the hallways if you were right, four out of ten patients. You know, this This was the world of the blockbuster drugs and it was about as imprecise as possible. Like if a patient has a blood pressure over this, give them this drug. Patient's got cholesterol over that, give them this other drug. And now as you start to get into these more effective therapies, because they're more precise, you actually start to create an interesting data problem. And that is you start to have smaller and smaller denominators. If I'm starting to say, well, this drug isn't just for people who have a blood pressure over this. They also need to have this gene. They also need to have or not have this pre-existing condition, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Every time I come up with more criteria, the pool of patients 
who are going to bed. It's more and more. And remember, we're making things that people take, they put in their bodies and and we have to make sure that they're safe, not just effective. And there's, in a good way, regulatory bodies who are protecting that that safety and efficacy is there. So now as these patient pools who will benefit from the therapies get smaller, we also have a smaller and smaller pool of people who we can use from a research perspective would be volunteering. So the specificity, which is great, means that we have a scarcity of patients that we've got to deal with in a new way. And I think that's been driving, at least I have a very kind of drug development centric view of the world. We can talk about AI and drug discovery. Can I find a new molecule? I really focus on the, well, what do I do if I think I've got something that's going to cure this kind of cancer? I have to think about making more evidence, but with fewer people. Right? Yeah. I need to these smaller denominators. And I think that's a big piece of what's driving the data landscape in life sciences. The other thing that I'll tell you, which is kind of interesting, is that the life sciences industry has not been really good about data standardization. And a, a guy who was a big influence in the way I think about data, Medidata's chief data officer, starting from about five years ago, his name's David Lee. And um, he came out of the insurance industry and he, and he taught me that data standardization doesn't sound sexy, but until you do that, you can't benchmark. Until you do that, you can't create a predictive model. And the life sciences industry hasn't been great about data standardization because everybody was doing stuff for this one drug in this one area. And so I see people outside of Medidata as well, but certainly the kind of stuff that we do is we try to use AI to climb that data value curve. How do we, A, figure out how to standardize data in different ways, data from different sources about different things? Let me just give you one quick tangent example of that. I got asked very kindly to speak at a a conference about um, stroke. And I do not know anything about cardiology. Like I did cancer research before we started Medidata. I'm comfortable talking about oncology. So I figured, wow, I better get ahead of it if they're asking me to present. And I you know, got up on stage and I said, listen, I don't know anything about stroke. But if I was speaking to a bunch of oncologists and they were trying to build a predictive model around cancer diagnosis and they were only looking at cancer research, they're not going to be very successful because everybody already has cancer in those research studies. But if you were to be able to go and look at large-scale cardiology studies, stroke studies, studies about heart attacks, if I were to be able to go pull data from studies and research about diabetes, then I'm going to know what those patients look like before their cancer diagnosis. And then I can start to use that to build that model. So when you put that lens on things, you realize I need to standardize data across a lot of different kinds of patients and a lot of different kinds of research, patients who aren't in research. I have to stack the deck. I don't mean that in a nefarious way to create to create the biggest possible denominator, to create the most evidence generating data set that I can. And even just generating that data set requires AI tools sometimes. And then once you've got that data set, I think probably inherently obvious, you, you've got more traditional statistical tools and methods, which frankly work great in a yeah, lot of yeah. instances. They sure but, do. But also you can now start to apply things like machine learning and neural networks and look for look for signal that you might have missed or enhanced signal that wasn't there traditionally. So I, I do think that's happening. I feel pretty good. There's a lot more we can do, but but we're, we've started as an industry getting that right. Yeah, and so there's a couple things to poke into here, Glenn. I, I like the landscape you've painted. I'm going to dive into a couple things you mentioned, <laughs> one of which was around standardization. So, yeah, I mean, what a tough problem. I think everybody we've interviewed in healthcare 
You guys are in pharma. If I was ever going to be selling an AI product, I've probably said this six times on the podcast, I would never be selling artificial intelligence solutions to hospitals. Like, give me a break. I want to sell to pharma companies. But in healthcare broadly, whether that be life sciences or, or diagnostics or whatever the case may be, just data being goofy and like in silos and locked up and not uniform is sort of this big ubiquitous issue. Is this, you know, when you talk about the standardization Clearly, from what I understand of our look into companies like the Mercks and the Bayers of the world, they're beginning to try to do this with their own big corpuses of you know historical information and whatever, being able to streamline things so that it's findable, maybe not machine readable yet. They, they don't necessarily know where that's going to add value just yet in most cases, but, but at least make it more uniform. Is this something that the industry is going to have to get to the same page from kind of a regulatory or kind of soft law level? Or is this just per company, we're going to have to come up with data governance policy? within our firm and just be really steady about those across silos? Like, how do you see this rolling out? Yeah. So I don't think, well, I do think that individual companies are working on that, but I also think that there's industry organizations, there's commercial entities, my own included, who are trying to do that beyond the walls of an individual company. And I think we're going to have to. I don't think the data that one company has is going to be sufficient um, across all the use cases that we not just are a good idea commercially, but we have a medical ethical obligation to create the best care possible. Yep, we, yep. we need these bigger data sets. And, and I do think that, that data quality is a really important thing to think about. I don't know if, if it's a, a regulatory prescriptive method of doing it or the way regulation works today, which is demonstrate to people that you've done a responsible set of work to standardize things and prove it. But a lot of people will point a finger at regulators and say they're slowing down innovation sometimes, particularly in pharma. And I do not believe that at all. Regulators' job isn't to be like, oh, Glenn, you're a great guy. So, you know, I I believe what all your data and algorithms put out. No, their job is to protect the public health and say, Glenn, prove to me yeah. On paper, that you did something that was scientifically and ethically responsible. Yeah, yeah it's a job for sure. it is. So, so I think if that requirement is there, what you'll see is individual companies trying to solve this on their own. And I've seen this before in the life sciences space with other technology things, even just the management of data. It used to be every company tried to do it their way. Yeah. They'd run it out of their basement. And then you know, 20 years later, there's Medidata doing a ton of research. And again, we're not the only company doing it. But you see platform providers that are doing it at a larger scale. So when I see everybody trying to do it individually, I get excited because that means that there's actually a market demand for that. Yeah. And and you're creating a marketplace where the best technologies, the best algorithms, the best data sources will create something that more and more people will come on to. And that's how that's good for everybody. Clearly, there's a I think we could extrapolate that for those of you listening into almost any industry, right? I think people say this even about I'm just going to throw some random stuff at you like automotive. Hey, if we're going to make safe self-driving cars, do we want Ford might develop something about some certain snowy driving circumstance, like there's going to be some things that are going to have to be transferable so that everybody's safer on the damn road, you know? And with drugs, maybe it's the same way. Clearly, the business opportunity is, hey, if we can be the ones who, even through kind of a soft norm, can kind of be the folks that people rely on to develop this system and structure 
then that's going to build a really sticky market position. And clearly from a business perspective, that's that's an appeal as well. Part of the challenge I see in life sciences, and I, I know you've obviously you guys have dealt with this and found ways around it or whatever. There's there's a way to frame it. But you know, I look at companies like we just did a piece on Johnson and Johnson, for example, looking at some of their current innovations and investments in an AI. Frankly, we don't see a tremendous amount, but they're involved in a, a consortium called Melody out in Europe somewhere, if I'm not mistaken, where Sanofi and a bunch of other big players are, from what I understand, exposing a certain amount of data. It's being kind of trained on in some aggregate sense, and then everybody's going to get a little bit of the benefit from it. How do we do this? Hey, we all have the same uniform stuff. Hey, we're able to kind of like mold things across companies. How do we do that without giving away the secret sauce? Because of course, clearly as a drug development firm, there's a humanitarian side, and then clearly we have to make payroll, and and that would mean that we've got to keep some of the things that are secret. So how do we uniform things and maybe cross-pollinate without the risk of us losing our crown jewels? Yeah, so that is not an easy thing to do. I'm I'm super appreciative of it. The way we've at least tried to tackle that problem is by creating like a a give-to-get dynamic. There are definitely companies out there that sell data, right? And I think there's a great place for them in the world, and they're probably doing and will do some awesome stuff. I think there's a a great place in the world for -for not-for-profit groups who say, hey, just throw all your data here and we'll, you know, create an aggregate. Yeah, yeah, there's that too, for sure. That's all all good. But I also think there's a place for a model where you say, look, if you put your data into this, what is effectively proprietary bucket, but with a third party that you trust, and let that third party then make sure that everybody who's putting their data into that pool is protected in terms of not showing the specifics of your individual data points. So, you know, in your example, you know, Sanofi doesn't see Johnson & Johnson's data or vice versa. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you got enough people in there that you can now do things in aggregate and let people compare their own specific data to the more generalized, bigger denominator that, that like a metadata or whoever yeah, it is yeah. for you. And it's done and the standardization is done for you in a way that is transparent and you can believe in the results. I think that's a really interesting commercial model, and it must exist in other industries. I, I'm just not an expert. Yeah, it's, well, it's, <laughs> the way you're talking about it makes it sound like it's kind of a nascent idea even for you guys. Where it's like, well, we think that there could be a space for this. Like it's it's something that could evolve, right? It's like and I, I believe you're right. I think it actually it absolutely could. I just think you, Mr. Glenn, or whoever your your absolute best partnership guys, you know, you better be drinking some beers with some of these people because there's a lot of trust that goes into those kind of relationships. So but there's a lot of trust that goes along in life sciences anyway, oh, right? For sure, I mean, for sure. Yeah, yeah you're, you're, you're right. dealing with data about patients, right? In some ways, yeah, high level. like anybody in medicine, right, has a, a person's life in their hands. But if if we're working on a, a vaccine for SARS-CoV-2, I mean, literally billions of people are going to get it. Like you've got billions of lives in your hands. So yeah. there's already a lot of trust that is important in our industry. And I do think that what we'll see by the way, there, there's posters at scientific sessions that we've done. There's some clients right now are taking some of these aggregated data sets to regulators, and they're using them to demonstrate exactly what I was saying before, that their drugs are safe and effect, are effective, but with a different kind of aggregated denominator. We, we call it a synthetic control arm, and it, it's not that there's androids in it or anything, the yeah, synthesis yeah, yeah. out of the people. It's synthesizing people who are in lots of different research studies into a cohort yeah. that can be used mm-hmm. as a as a valid comparator to the patients who you treated with your new drug. And this is solving that problem you were saying of the narrowness. If you have some super niche allergy medication for people with a certain kind of whatever, then yeah, maybe you really need to extrapolate in that kind of uniform data way and, and kind of square that circle that you articulated. 
And I actually think that not only, well, I, I know this is happening, I see it happening, but this is a harbinger of things to come because take that example I gave and let's take it to its like most extreme. So in, and I'll use oncology because it's happening there first in cancer, but I think it's going to happen in almost every therapeutic area, probably even like analgesics and, and you know, what, what the next Tylenol is. But we are all so interestingly, I mean, a biologically individual and people talk about cancer therapy and almost every patient really is like an N of one problem. There is nobody who has yeah, your exact yeah. same, your exact same yeah. tumor. Right. In fact, your tumor has probably different kinds of cells that have different mutations, even within this one problem in your body. So when you start to think about that, we have to use these techniques to extrapolate what the best therapy is for every single person at the right time down to an individual. We're going to need as an industry, and I'm not just talking about now life sciences, although I think life sciences is important part of the mix for sure. It's going to pay for a lot of this. Oh, yeah, right? for sure. For sure. But but these mathematical models that we use to figure out what to do for individuals, they're being born right now using these techniques of stacking up all this data and figuring out how to use it as, as a group. We're going to use that against individuals. So this stacking, I'm just going to clarify this point. We'll move into the next question. But I, I want to nutshell this for the audience. Um, the stacking is it sounded almost like a combination of two things. One, if we can have some harmonization, unification around the data, we can combine it in certain ways where nobody's giving away their secret sauce, but maybe we're able to get a bigger cluster of people who have a specific genetic condition or whatever, and then use that you know, for, for our clinical trials. That's one side of it. You also mentioned kind of the synthetic sort of element. Was that kind of like, you know, what immediately came to my mind was, you know, when we're, when we're, training an algorithm to read handwriting, you know, we'll come up with a bunch of just programmatically generated handwriting that might be slight variations of things and like using that. I don't think that's what you meant there, but what did, what did you mean by synthetic again? No. So, so you got that stack, right? Yeah. So we've got yeah. the stack of every patient and I'm coming to see you, right? And you say, all right, well, what am I going to do to treat Glenn? Well, I got to figure out, because Glenn's unique, who's similar to Glenn. And yeah. so what you do right. is, is you build these kind of like matrix views of patients and you start to use algorithms to compare Glenn with everybody in the stack. Yeah. Okay. And you, okay. you, you pull those people out of the stack and you then synthesize them into a group of smaller stack, but that is purpose built to make a, a, a guess about what to do best for Glenn. Got or it. you pull them, you synthesize one of these smaller stacks from the big one to use as a comparator. The same way if I had a group of patients who I gave my new drug to, and I give another group of patients a placebo, a sugar pill, right? I compare them with like basic stats. Well, why should I be giving people sugar pills? If we have tons of people who are in research who've already gotten the standard of care, can't I resynthesize those people into a comparator group instead of exposing a whole bunch of volunteer patients to something that is yeah. not effective, I know is not effective. Yep. And that's the synthesis of the group. Yeah, it's not robots, you know. Yeah, it's, you're not talking about programmatically generated. I, yeah. I wasn't suspecting you were. So, but but it is it is quite interesting because the direct analogy to some of our listeners are out of avid readers at emerge.com. We're always covering use cases in different industries. You know, we, we think about how a Netflix or an Amazon does recommendations. You know, you, you're, you're, you're stripping, you know, well, here's all, you know, in, in their case, it's purchase behavior, geolocation, whatever else. For you, it's genetic stuff and health history and whatever. And uh, yeah, you're just finding those similar clusters and being able to extrapolate a little bit. You know, uh, the movie Gattaca, right? Yeah, if, yeah. If people haven't seen it, like the idea is like your DNA 
decides whether or not you're going to be an astronaut or somebody who's cleaning toilets yeah, or something. Cleaning toilets, right? Yeah, yeah. And and of course, of course, that's patently ludicrous because your genes, right? Interestingly, like don't change that much. There are instances where you have mutations and things, but actually, I probably can't tell you much more about your health today than I could have told you about your health the day you were born because it's a static data set, your genetic code, right? That is a very simple view of it. There's a lot more elaborate stuff. But if you then think about all the stuff that is changing about you over time, your genotype and then all of your phenotype and you start to measure that stuff and you start to think about it, it really is a problem of finding not one needle but the right 10 needles in the haystack that allow us to make the best comparison between Glenn or a group of patients and patients like them. And that's another place where these artificial intelligence tools are used. So we use them to create the stacks, but we also use them to select the right needles out of those haystacks to create these comparator groups. Yep. And I I can see those as reasonable applications. I would be, you know, I'd be frank with you if that struck me as not possible based on precedents in other industries, but that clustering strikes me as quite possible, um, particularly if you solve that data harmonization issue. I mean, that's a lot of the crux of it. I know we're just about to wrap up. I know you have seen a lot of things change with uh, COVID-19 and thinking about what that means for the future of your industry. Any closing thoughts before we wrap on sort of what this means for now in the near future in life sciences? Yeah, so at the risk of making myself not look that good, um, (laughs) because I'm definitely including myself in in this, I think, criticism, wouldn't it have been nice if we had all that patient data stacked up? And I mean, there there are a few million patients around the world who are in studies on the Medidata platform. It's all different companies doing the research, so it's their data. But can you imagine if we had that stack and we were paying attention to in the 150 countries that we do research, knowing some of these patients' genetics and all of their phenotypes in a better way than we normally do in medicine because we see them consistently. Yeah. Wouldn't it have been great yeah. if we could layer on, like, who seems to be coming down with COVID-19? I mean, no, 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 no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Yeah. And it, and, and yeah. I, yeah. And I, but I think that, that that's an interesting – it puts, like, an exclamation point on why we need to do this. It's like there's an ethical imperative not just a commercial driver to think about data in different ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, and in, to some degree, you know, my thought is like what you're articulating makes a tremendous amount of sense given your business model. It makes slightly less if I work at Bayer. However, like despite the bias tilt, I do understand the value prop and I do think that it is compelling and I think it does feel like it'll have to be the future. People are not going to keep this in silos forever. I do think it makes sense if yep. you work at Bayer because if you oh. if pharmaceutical A and pharmaceutical company B comes out with the same effectively drug and and they're competing for the same group of patients and neither of them knows that you might be better off taking drug A before drug B or drug B um, is better in a certain kind of, of patient than drug A is, then actually you are not serving your customer and you are not generating the revenue that you could be generating. And so you should be motivated with other companies to line up tightly in terms of what is the best way to treat patients. I actually think it's in your best interest. No, it it clearly is. I mean, there's a little bit more potentially to lose while in your firm. It's, It's almost explicitly to gain. But I think you do things like, you see things like Melody, you see companies like yours that have been tremendously successful. You guys were acquired recently, you know, massive congratulations for that. And yes, I think long term, it's not against their interest by any means. And, and hopefully, I think, Glenn, it'll be part of the future. I know these are things you've thought about. Uh, for people who are interested in some of Glenn's thoughts, 
uh, is a book coming out in August called The Patient Equation by Wiley. It's about precision medicine in the age of COVID-19 and beyond. Glenn, if people are interested in, in staying in touch, following your thoughts, we like life sciences. I know we have a lot of people that follow that space. Where should they go on the web to find you? Uh, cool. So um, you can find me on Twitter, et cetera, at, at Captain Clinical, a fictitious superhero who like fights it. for good I science. Like, I like it. Um, and uh, Medidata.com is our website for anybody interested. And there's all kinds of papers and, and links to publications. We do academic stuff, too. So it's not all commercial. Awesome. All right. Very good. Glenn, hey, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. This was fun today. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. Big thanks to Glenn for being able to join us on this episode and share some of his insights and future perspective. If you aren't already, be sure that you're following us on social. It's just at E-M-E-R-J on Twitter, or you can find Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research on LinkedIn or Facebook, and you can follow our pages to get updates, not only on our latest podcasts as soon as they go live, but also on all of our latest articles, research, and any free white papers that we come out with for our audience and our subscribers. So be sure to stay tuned on social. Follow us there if you're not already. And stay tuned for Thursday as we get into our Making the Business Case episode, which is what we do every Thursday here. So I'll catch you in two days and looking forward to seeing you back on the show.